All right, the uh, lesson I have written uh, today uh, uh, comes out of John chapter 18, but does not specifically relate to any verses in John chapter 18. It's entitled, In the Prisoner's Defense. And as I said to you last week, I showed you all of the ways that uh, the legal rights of Jesus were violated. What I didn't realize when I started this lesson, these lessons, I did not realize how great the legal rights were of a defendant in Israel during the first century. It was amazing. Uh, and in each and every one of those cases, Jesus' rights were trampled. And so now, really, after the case uh, of the prosecution against Jesus had finished, instead of taking a vote uh, for judgment, what they should have done is they should have examined whether there was any defense that Jesus had, what rights did he have to defend himself against these charges. And they should have done that irrespective of whether Jesus spoke up or not. They had a, they had a, a, a responsibility to do that. And the high priest had a responsibility to do that. And so not only were all the procedures not followed in terms of the prosecution of Jesus, even in the defense of Jesus, the signs were not done. So really, what should have occurred here is at the end of the case, the high priest should have said to Jesus, what signs do you have that you are in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God? That was, that's what should have taken place. And so what I'm going to give you today is the hypothetical, if I were there defending Jesus, these are the statements that I would have made uh, to the high priest to demonstrate that, in fact, Jesus was who he said he was. And they should have known it. Uh, if, in fact, they were the religious elite, it was quite obvious to anybody who had opened the scriptures. Uh, and so... Uh, I want to lay this out to you today, even though I know you may know pieces of it here and there. We've covered some of it before, but I thought it was important enough. Whenever I write these lessons, when I get done, I give it to Belinda and I say, do you think I ought to give this or is it something I've done before? And she said, no, you should give this. You should give it. So I'm, I'm, I'm trusting my wife's instincts on this, which I, which I usually do. And so what sign do you have that we may believe in you, that you are who you say you are? So if they had an open mind, if they really searched the scripture, the first thing that they would have asked Jesus, it would have been very simple. They wouldn't even need Jesus to give this testimony. Where was he born? Where was he born? Now, they had access to that because they had access to the Roman census. Um, and you know, it was because of the Roman census that Jesus, who had really uh, would have been born in Nazareth, was forced, his mother and father were forced to travel to Bethlehem in order to fulfill the right of uh, the census. Now, what I didn't realize, and this is how magnificent God is, I want you to just see the Creator sitting here and moving all these parts. The census should have taken place earlier than it did. But what had happened was the Jews were unhappy about having to travel to their home countries, hometowns. Uh, and so they opposed the census. And it was in that opposition of the census that months went by until finally the decree was settled that caused Mary and Joseph to have to go to Bethlehem. The only reason they were in Bethlehem was to, to fulfill the legal responsibility that they had to Rome. So imagine that, God moving the chess pieces in time so that Mary and Joseph would be in Bethlehem in order to take the census. 
in order to be where they, where they came from. Uh, and so there they are in Bethlehem, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now, why would that have been important? Well, that would have been important because that was one of the first prophetic statements that you find about Jesus, and it's in Micah, Micah, towards the end of the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5. Let's turn to that. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, folks, uh, anybody who reads those words, origins are from of old, from ancient times, would understand that in the, the Jewish translation, that meant from eternity, from before time began. Now, who possibly would be the only person who would come out of Bethlehem whose origins would be of, from old, eternal, creative aspect is the Messiah. It is only the Messiah. So clearly, if they had studied this, if they had studied this, they would have known it. Now, let me bring you to your, something to your attention. You recall that when the wise men uh, had been looking up into the heavens and saw an astronomical anom anomaly, uh, and so decided that they were going to follow it because they were conscious of the prophecies of Daniel, and they knew that, the, that based on those prophecies in Daniel, that about this time uh, the Messiah would be born. Uh, where they knew, they knew to come to Judea. They knew to come to Jerusalem. Well, they come to Jerusalem, uh, and they come uh, to see Herod, and, and in fact... They ask, where is the new king? And so Herod asks his wise men, and whatever do they tell him, the new king will be born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. How about that? They knew it. They knew that under the scriptures that the, that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem. And that is why uh, we know that they subsequently slayed all of the infant males two years old or younger, a tragedy, uh, that were in Bethlehem because they knew the Scripture. They knew the Scripture. So you see this aspect of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So that was the first thing they could have found at the trial. Well, gee, this guy, he, he's from Nazareth, but actually he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. That's a marker, number one. Uh, then the second thing is the Messiah was to be born of a virgin, and Jesus was so born. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord, verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, let me drill down on this. Because I've heard uh, Jewish rabbis opine on this verse, and it's amazing what they say. Well, they say here, well, the, the, word, the word there for virgin really could mean a maiden, a woman, a young woman. So let me get, let me get this straight, okay? Because uh, I'm not so smart. Let me get this straight. So you're telling me God's sign is that a woman will give birth? Gee, that's a shock in and of itself. A woman will give birth. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing astounding about a woman giving birth, 
But what is astounding is a virgin, a woman who had never been with a man who would give birth. That's the consequence of that sign. And I, and I submit to you that if you go back and look at the, uh, the roots, root words from that word, you would see that that would support that. So, and not only that, but look at what he will be called. He will be called Emmanuel. And in, Jew, and in a Jewish translation, Emmanuel means God is with us. So this is an extraordinary prophecy that in Bethlehem of Judea, uh, a virgin will, will be impregnated without ever being with a man, and the result will be a male child who will be called God is with us. Now, they could have found this out. They could have, they could have had witnesses to go and, and bring in Mary and talk to Mary and people that were around and would have supported that. You know that many of the Jews mocked Jesus by saying he didn't have a legal father. You know that. We've studied that. They mocked him for that. So there clearly were, were uh, rumors about the fact that Mary had not been, been married to Joseph when she had been impregnated. Uh, and so uh, it's clear. Now, now uh, also, uh, look at the narrative in Luke chapter 1. What's good about this is that you can keep this all in one place when you want to talk to people about why you believe in Jesus. Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, underline that. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel. I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, I want you to understand something. This comes out of Luke, which means what? It means Luke, who wrote this probably about 10, 12, 13 years after the death of Jesus, was interviewing Mary, who was alive, most likely in Ephesus, because she was stayed with, with, with John, the apostle, in Ephesus. And so Luke is getting a firsthand account of what took place. The high priest could have done this. He could have done this and asked for the testimony. But no, they didn't want to do it. So you understand how important this is. Now, the, uh, secondly, the Messiah was to be born out of the house of David. And Jesus was so born. Take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. And this is, this is now... God speaking to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. All right, now move ahead to verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, folks, 
How can your throne be established forever? How can your kingdom be established forever? Your kingdom can only be established forever if out of your line will come the Son of God, the Messiah, the Eternal One. And so clearly, uh, that, that's what's, what's taking place here. Now, interestingly, uh, Jesus was related to David uh, genealogically by both his mother and both his father, his adopted father. So both, both roots uh, come directly out of David. That could have been very easily determined uh, by a court of inquiry that had, that had taken place, but they weren't so interested in doing this. Uh, and so you see this. Now, the appearance of the Messiah was also to be preceded by a forerunner who was to be like Elijah. Now turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And this is now written probably 500 years before Christ would be born. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you decide desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So what does that say? The Lord will come. He will come to the temple. But before he comes to the temple, I will have a messenger that will presage the coming of, of Jesus Christ. Now we know that that messenger would be similar to Elijah, and we know that that messenger was John the Baptist, the forerunner. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 12. This is Jesus. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who had presaged Jesus, who had indicated that he was a forerunner, that God was going to send his son, who was going to send the Messiah. And so Jesus recognized this. Uh, and this also is true. Uh, they could have gotten this from the testimony of John uh, the Baptist as well. Clearly, they could have done that. Turn, uh, of course, at this time, John the Baptist was dead, but, but they could have gotten that through other witnesses. Look at John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. This is John the Baptist. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So let's get a picture of this. They saw John the Baptist. They saw what he was doing. Crowds were coming to them. He was ministering to them. He was baptizing them. Not the same baptism that we have today following Jesus, but a, baptizing, a baptism of repentance under the old covenant. <clears throat> and so he's baptizing them. <clears throat> and so the high priest sends out priests and Levites to go and question him. What is this about? Who are you? All right. Uh, to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. So you see, their radar was up. He could possibly have been the Christ. It wasn't that they were walking around blithely ignorant. They knew, they knew things were coming down the pike. All right? Are you the Christ? They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, they said that because they were aware of the verses that we had just read in Micah, that, that in fact, uh, there would be a forerunner. Uh, and, it, and it speaks about that 
almost as if it's another Elijah. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Well, what is that about? But Moses told the Jewish people now, uh, 1,200 years before, that God would send another, the prophet, uh, who, would, who would lead his people. So they're questioning, are you the prophet? And clearly, the prophet is another name for the Messiah. Are you the prophet? He answered again, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Wow. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. Now there it is. Among you stands one you do not know. Right now, there is alive in Israel the one who I have come to announce. You do not know him. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands the one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now you see what's going on. All of this is percolating around, but the high priest and the Sanhedrin are ignorant. They have no desire to sift out for the facts. They have no desire to put a defense together to see exactly who Jesus is. And so this becomes so profound, so profound. Now, we know that according to Scripture, the Messiah would do many great works and miracles, and Jesus had performed the prophesied miracles and signs. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> now, this is a prophetic set of verses. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, those verses are in Isaiah, and they are the predicate of the Messiah. It is the Messiah that is being spoken of there, that God is preparing Jesus, who will come, who will bind up the needs of the poor, who will clear the hearts of the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Now, what kind of freedom do you think we're talking about? Are we talking about political freedom? No, we are talking about religious freedom, spiritual freedom from the chains of sin. Can I get an amen? amen. Now you understand what's going on. That's what those verses are about. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jesus would cite those verses about himself in the very temple. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. And I love this, this uh, section of Scripture because it shows me exactly how Jesus delivered his testimony, how powerful it was. And you really get a sense of seeing the character of Jesus. Let's look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And I want you to understand that, in the power of the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
uh, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. So now news about Jesus is now percolating through the masses. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath, Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And so here he is, going back to his hometown, and going now into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And, and, and if you study Jewish uh, rituals, uh, uh, there would be assigned people from time to time who would read a verse from the Scripture. And so Jesus got up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now I want you to understand how this is going down. Somebody hands him the scroll from Isaiah. Here, young man, read this. It's not like Jesus said, oh, let me pick through what we've got. Yeah, I'll take that one. No, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, quote, and this is the quote from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Whoa. That could be a movie. <laughs> the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. God has spoken. Now, this comes out of Luke, meaning that Luke had gone back and gotten eyewitness testimony to people who were there and heard the very words. Most likely, his mother was probably one of those witnesses. But I know Luke, I presume that there were others who were there and heard it. Now, the high priest could have done that. The Sanhedrin could have done that. Effectively, God announcing to Israel, to this day, right now, these, these scriptures have been fulfilled. Yes, he had been healing the brokenhearted. Yes, he had been healing the blind. Yes, he had been healing the paralyzed. Who else does this but God himself? God himself. So you see this. Uh, and, and so it's, it's so profound as you begin to understand this. Uh, and and here's, here's another thing to understand, that the Sanhedrin understood that Jesus was performing miracles. In the beginning, they didn't believe it, but then they came to believe it, especially now uh, they knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised a guy from the dead? Oh, my gosh. Yes, he did. He raised a guy from the dead. And this caused them to, to condemn him even more. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 47. You understand how Jesus, the, the, the prophetic powers that Jesus had. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, he is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What happened here? What happened was that 
Uh, Nathanael was completely occluded under a tree. No one could see him. Jesus is some distance away, and Jesus, uh, because he's God himself, could see Nathanael even though he had been covered up by a tree. And not only does he see him, he understands even what he's thinking about, what he's reflecting about. And most likely, uh, Nathanael was reflecting about the the, uh, stairway of Jacob where the angels are ascending and descending. We know that, Jacob's ladder. And so Jesus repeats it, and now it becomes a prophetic prophecy, meaning that at the final days, when Jesus comes back to rule, the angels of heaven will be going down and coming up, just like an escalator, as this place becomes their home uh, and God takes over. So you see all of this coming together. And so then it was prophesied that the Messiah would make a public entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And this Jesus had done. Nobody could deny that fact. And I gave you a citation for where that is, Zechariah chapter 9. It was prophesied that the Messiah should be portrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Now, you don't think the Sanhedrin understood that? After all, they had paid off Judas. They had given him 30 pieces of silver. Turn to Psalm 41. I mean, does your head almost blow up from all the facts? Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So there you have a prophecy that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. All right? Then look at Zechariah chapter 11. All right? The end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, excuse me, Zechariah 11, apology. Zechariah 11, verse 12. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And all this passage is talking about the good shepherd who would come back. 30 pieces of silver betrayed by his friend. All of this was absolutely available to be understood because they themselves had used Judas as an informant. So they had firsthand knowledge. Now, the Messiah was also to be a man of poverty and suffering and was supposed to be and, and was to be despised and rejected by the leaders of Israel, just as Jesus was. Turn to Isaiah 53. Their own Messiah would be rejected, despised. Giving you a workout on a rainy day, huh? Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. All right? I mean, it was so odd. There's a a statement in, in Latin that you use in court called res ipsa loquitur, which means... The thing speaks for itself. The thing speaks for itself. I give you Jesus. Res ipsa loquitur. Uh, he, he embodies all of the evidence, all the factors, all of the prophecies, right there, sitting in front of them, on trial, and not one question given to him, or, or a statement, or an attempt made to try to find out who, in fact, he really was. And you see this. They were rejecting him. They despised him. Their very act proved who he was. Uh, And the very irony of that has escaped them. Uh, And so uh, all of this comes together 
uh, to prove who Jesus was. Now, look, I'm not saying that, that God failed here. God didn't fail. It was the will of God, and Jesus had agreed to the will of God that Jesus would be sacrificed on the cross. But all I'm telling you is that all of the people who had responsibility to see who the Messiah was failed miserably because they were blinded, uh, absolutely blinded. Uh, and, and so you see this, and your heart is broken. Uh, and you see, that's why uh, there, there is a judgment on the religious elite. Not a judgment on individual Jews, but a judgment on individual uh, on institutional Judaism. Uh, certainly there is, uh, and we understand that because even to this day, if you sit and you try to talk to someone who's a religious Jew, it's very, very difficult, very, very difficult to, to crack through that blindness, really, even though you see things like this, which really uh, astounds us. Uh, and, and to wrap this all up, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Actually, we'll start with uh, uh, 32. And this is Barnabas and Saul now speaking to the people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. There you want to understand what it means to be the only begotten son. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings, promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. And the congregation said, Amen. Amen. And let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words. Lord, I ask you that they resonate this week in our heart when we understand exactly how great you are and how everything came together to prove who Jesus was, which is why, Lord, we, we believe in you, not in blind faith, but by overwhelming evidence, we know who you are. You have demonstrated it in a thousand ways. We thank you for saving us. We ask you, God, to give us the wisdom and the ability to bring it to a world that is lost, to speak as we're speaking here, to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's have some cake. Amen. <laughs>